0: to the commercial disco the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving australia's unique innovation and tech landscape now over to your host james riley
1: Welcome to the Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, editorial director of InnovationOz.com. With me today is Adrian Demarco, executive chairman and founder, of a very proudly Australian software company, Technology One. Adrian founded the company 30 years ago. It's grown to, I think, am I right, Adrian, 1,600 employees. That's right. Listed in 1999 and a two and a half billion dollar market cap on the Australian Stock Exchange. Adrian, I wanted to ask you: all startups, even 30-year-old startups, have a a genesis story. Were you selling sand shoes at the back of the ute, and you came upon software and decided to jump in? How did it all come about?
0: Well, as I say to people, we were actually one of the original startups in Australia because when we started, we started with the idea to actually build software products, which was really quite a new idea up until then. The products and the e that existed weren't really products, they had been custom software developments that had been done for someone and then subsequently they could be resold to other people. So, our idea was to actually do very deep research and development and to build true products that were meant to be sold over and over again with no change to the source code. So, it was a pretty revolutionary idea back then, but there was no venture capital, no VCs. So, um, we had to... Um, go and uh, knock on doors, and I was very lucky to be able to find a past client of mine, a guy called Dougal McTaggart, who had a heights processing plant in the outer Brisbane suburb of Hemant, and uh, he was prepared to provide the the seed capital, and so that's before there was a VC around. So, he was what I would call one of the first venture capitalists, really, in Australia, and um, we started in the front of his heights plant, which is a very interesting place to start a a very R&D-centric organization i still have fond memories of when people wanted to come and visit us they would sort of see where we were in the front of this hides plant and they'd sort of walk away and shake their heads thinking well this this doesn't look good so a very interesting start for a, a tech company
1: so here we are 30 years later, and it's 2020, and there's a crisis going on. Well, there's a pandemic anyway. It doesn't feel like a crisis right now in Sydney, but other parts of the country are doing a bit harder. I mean, it's not a bad time to talk about managing in a crisis. In a 30 year run at the, at the company, and the company's going strong, I'm sure there would have been some difficult times. What, what would be some lessons that have been learned along the way? I'm thinking particularly about maybe the GFC, but you might have some others.
0: Yeah, look, I think. Crises are very interesting because they really test a company and you can learn a lot out of a crisis. Probably the biggest thing you learn out of a crisis is, is, number one, your strategy correct? Because if your strategy isn't correct, it really does become quite obvious in a crisis. And I've seen quite a few companies that have realised that you know their strategy was wrong through the crisis. And so, it's a good chance then to to relook at your strategy and, and to, to change courses and, and pivot, which is, I think, really important. The other thing that a crisis also highlights is just how good your executive team is and your board in steering you through that crisis. And again, it's a good chance to uh, evaluate you know your board members and to evaluate your, um, your key executives. Are they up to the job and making the difficult decisions? If you make the difficult decisions through a crisis, you come out, I think, a better company but they can be very hard decisions, that's for sure.
1: I'm sure. So, I mean, why don't we talk about a historical note? I think tech companies generally came out of GFC in not a bad position. I did hear an anecdote about your company, and you'll have to tell me it's true, but when you move from box software, the on-premise stuff, to software as a service, it's quite a radical jump and there's plenty of software companies along the way that haven't managed to do it. I heard that the actual Brisbane floods was provided the burning platform, if it were, to really get you guys moving on getting into uh, software as a service.
0: Is that the case? The Brisbane floods did help, that's for sure. It reinforced the decision that we had made was the correct decision because with the Brisbane floods, we had to all work remotely and we realised then just how important moving towards software as a service was. But we actually started to move down that direction earlier than that. And it was about about 12 years ago we made the decision to move and become a -a software-as-a-service company, which was quite a controversial decision. We had a lot of major shareholders saying to us, why are you doing this? Do you really think that big organizations like universities and councils and government departments are going to put their data in your cloud and going to trust you every day to run their business? And we um, we had a lot of pushback, but we said no. We we think it's the future, and uh, we redirected over sixty percent of our business into building the SaaS platform and rewriting our software. So it was a huge undertaking, and so there was a lot of criticism at the time. But if we hadn't done it, we would not be where we are today. But it comes back to this clarity of strategy and vision and um, execution. You know, and we have a very good board. I mean, they were prepared to to sign off on this, huge investment. And I think very few companies would have done it and very few boards would have signed off on that investment you know, going back 12 years ago. I mean, we pretty much took all our R&D effort, and just redeployed it to rebuilding our software for the cloud. Might
1: be a good time to talk about skills. That redeployment of R&D dollars requires redeployment of skills and, and finding new skills. How was that at the time in Australia? I can't recall. There would have been a lot of people around who... Have that kind of background on hand.
0: No, exactly right. I mean, we have reinvented the business now on many occasions. So, this is just about the third reinvention of the business. So, we've done this now a few times, and we know that if you don't do it, you'll be left behind because we've seen it happen to our competitors. But we also know the challenge in doing it because we were an on premise company. We had no idea what cloud or SaaS was. And I got to tell you that the first few iterations of what we built was just so wrong, so bad. But it's through making those mistakes that you learn and you have patient customers. And over time, we refined it and learned and we got to building this amazing SaaS platform, which is massively scalable and global. But we wouldn't have got there if we hadn't have started the journey and we wouldn't have got there if we hadn't have been prepared to make lots of mistakes and learn from those mistakes. The first version of our SaaS platform, version one, was just an unmitigated disaster. It was so wrong, but you know it was important. I look at our SaaS platform today, it's almost like 180 degrees different to where we were going. It's just crazy how different it is, but it's one of those journeys of recovery. You've got to start the journey and you have to learn and make mistakes. And Again, you've got to have the right sort of board and the right sort of executive team to execute that sort of strategy of making mistakes and learning and reiteratively improving things.
1: All right, I'm going to come back and talk about R and D a little bit uh, in a moment, but just because I understand that the company invests at 20% of revenues a year, something of that order into revenue now,
0: close to $65 million, which is which is a giant
1: number, if uh, certainly relative to the average Australian company. But we'll come back to that before we do, though, succession planning. So your executive chairman. You'll have to explain that role in a moment, but Ed Chung is the new CEO. He's been in that role for a little while, but he's been in the company for quite some time. And I think, if I'm right, you were sort of planning with Ed for some years. It's an observation that uh, some Australian companies in the tech sector, founders often have difficulty with succession planning. So I'm going to ask you what's your day to day look like? What's your involvement now? And how does, you know, what sort of advice have you got for others in a similar position?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I think in the end, we are all mortal and we have a time limit on us. And sometimes people do not want to uh, face that reality. And, you know, there are founders that have literally been taken out of the building in a box, you know. Uh, they have died of the job. And I came to the conclusion that that was not good for me nor good for the uh, for the business. So I started the succession planning over 12 years ago, looking at my executive team mentoring them, trying to find the person who would become the CEO. And uh, Edward uh, was the person that just stood out as the right person. So he's been with us a long time and has risen to the occasion. And so um, it's uh, something I'm very proud of that we have such a strong CEO that has grown with the business, understands the business and the culture and the values and strategies, which is just irreplaceable. You know, if you get people from outside, you know, you don't get that sometimes you have to do that but i think if you if you plan long term then you don't for me my job today is really one of mentoring so i mentor ed and also to um, mentoring the board as well and the job for me now is to uh, is to replace myself once again so to become uh, no longer the chairman but just to become a board member i think that will be uh, a very important next step for the business without losing the momentum and the culture and the values that make the company what it is. So, it is very much a mentoring role with an eye on the overall strategy of the business.
1: Well, first, I was going to ask, what's your? Uh, have you got a time frame on that or it's just uh, not, not that you're getting a hurry along, but what's your plan?
0: Well, I'm 63, so, uh, you know, I think another couple of years would be a good time to uh, to have that sorted out, so i would be 65, 66, you know. But, you know, you, you've got to work out that to get the right people and on board and, you know, get them to understand the culture and value of the business. So, yeah, another few years, I think.
1: Well, I don't know. If I'm only 65. I'm sure you've got another career in front of you. So, there you go. Yeah,
0: a lot of time on the golf course. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Given that you are a software-as-a-service cloud-based, you know, I guess any uh, software company starting today talks about being born global. Now, I know your sweet spot as a company, certainly in recent times, has been in local government and universities, good-sized markets, obviously. I think you're now looking at Britain in a fairly substantial way. If you were starting the company today, you'd be be looking at international markets differently. So how aggressively are you pursuing them?
0: Look, we are. We're pursuing it quite aggressively, and the UK is a big focus for us, and we see a huge market opportunity in the uk so we're very excited about that and once we get the uk better down we'd look at the us next so um, this global expansion is very important to the the business the challenge for us is that we're an enterprise software company and enterprise software particularly at universities and in local government they are the equivalent of like a Boeing 747 it's like a jumbo jet They're, they're huge pieces of software and architecture and they're massive things to get off the ground, and it's unusual to most SaaS software, which is normally much smaller and very narrowly focused. So um, they are easier to build and easier to deploy because of the narrow focus. But our vision is very much this total end-to-end ERP solution. So it's a massive undertaking to deliver SaaS, and it brings with it challenges, but. With the challenges comes opportunity because we believe the future is not small planes but a big jumbo because you get the economies of scale and we believe by delivering big enterprise system as a service you don't need to then go to ten different SaaS providers to cobble together a solution so we're very excited about the vision and what we're delivering but it does bring a lot of complexity for us. And particularly when you go to places like the UK and then the US, there's a huge amount of regionalization that has to be done to really get it to understand all the nuances in the UK across such a big, broad suite of software. But once we've done it, then we're in a, such a strong position. It's a very exciting value proposition we're bringing to the table.
1: Yeah, and I, I guess British Local Council model is not a million miles from our end, albeit you know, larger in scale.
0: Actually, it's amazing how different they are, you know, and even higher ed. I mean, there's probably 85% that's the same, but there's 15% on the regulatory side that's very different and it's very complicated, right. and that's what we've got to come to grips with and we've got to do. But, again, when we do it, we do it as part of our global code line and global SaaS platform. So everyone's running the same instance of software, and that's where the huge economies of scale and benefits come from. It's this one instance, but it. Behaves differently based on the country you're in. That's our model. We're not creating different versions for different countries.
1: Okay, I, I'm going to move on to procurement. So I think over the years, uh, just as a as an observer, as a reporter, I've um, seen you've been quite vocal about uh, difficulties in selling to government. At, at times, I think you you kind of you get frustrated, and we hear a lot of. Look, and this is literally over the last few decades. You you've been noisy, then you've you've not worried about government. Then you've been noisy again, and You seem to have a love-hate relationship in there. I guess I want to ask you how that stands now. There's a couple of things. Firstly, the federal government, the Australian government, seems wedded to one particular vendor for ERP services, the the large German company, almost wedded to them. Now, but we're living in this time where politicians are talking about supply chains and sovereign capability and, and building local companies. So, firstly... Is the government doing enough, from a procurement point of view, to bring up Australian companies? And secondly, what's your experience of government today?
0: It's a really complex question to answer, and there's different parts to it. But let me unpack it a little bit. Firstly, I think in Australia, the multinationals have had a huge influence on government policy and continue to have huge influence on government policy. And so we end up with policies that actually are not good for the local industry, So, for example, you know, to award a contract for the whole of government to one supplier means that the likelihood of an Australian company getting it is very low because it's typically going to be won by a big multinational that can bankroll it and take on the risk and everything else, which is not good for industry development. And there's no reason to have a whole of supplier approach because in the end, What matters is that you want competition, you want departments to be able to choose from a number of vendors, get competitive tension in place, and you can still bring all the data across all the departments to get a holistic view. And that's a good example of the strong influence multinationals have on the Australian economy and on government policy. And we've seen that exerted time and time again to do with the NBN, to do with the way contracts are created, the concept of shared services. All these things have been pushed by the multinationals. And that is at odds with the local industry. I actually sat on the peak body for the Australian information industry, the AAA, and it's actually with the deputy chairman. And the AAA both had multinationals and local companies. And I could see firsthand the conflict, you know, in the policies. The policies that were good for one were not good for the other. So uh, it is a big issue we have, and the multinationals, you know, by representation out of proportion in Australia to other countries. So it is a problem. And we end up with policies by government that are not good for the local industry.
1: So just and very specifically then on procurement, that's the that, that would be one area where you could have been given a leg up over the years. Yeah, I think you are in the federal government right now and
0: Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's important. It's not about getting a leg up. I think it's about policies that really Makes sense. I mean, to give a contract to one vendor doesn't make sense. I mean, you don't get competitive tension, and you've got all eggs in one basket. So, firstly, it doesn't stand scrutiny, and then secondly, you know, by creating a panel approach and refreshing the panel, it means you can introduce new players with new technology and remove players that aren't competitive anymore. And also, too, by panel approach, you then have local companies that could actually get a place on the panel. So, it's a real win-win. But you don't want to give the locals a leg up, but you don't want to disadvantage them either. I think it's coming up with sensible policies that are good for government and good for the local industry. And that's very possible, but you have to um, be very careful because of the huge influence the multinationals have on policy.
1: Do you have any expectation that given the current climate and the, you know, the focus on these supply chain issues and sovereign capability issues, that there'll be a change of heart in government?
0: I think it's very hard for government to change too, don't get me wrong, because they are very risk averse. I mean, government departments don't want to take a risk, and you can understand why. And because of their risk-averse nature, their contracts typically have huge liquidated damages and penalties and a fixed time, fixed price. So really, it's not a great place to to do business with if you're a startup. I'm involved with quite a lot of startups and I actually avoid startups that want to deal with government because I think it's just too hard a playing field if you're a startup. Why would you want to go there? You know, you're better off to work in the commercial world and focus on that because they are not as risk averse, and um, it's much easier to build a product and take it to market and to scale it. So, I think it is problematic for government by their very nature. So, um, and when they talk about government being exemplar for local technology, I, I do smile about it because. You know, when the rubber hits the road, I mean, they're going to come and want to sue you, you know, and beat the hell out of you if you haven't delivered, you know. So, I don't know that's good for local industry. So, it, it's a bit of a, I think, a, a long bow.
1: Yeah. Okay. It's a, uh, that's a fairly damning assessment, I'd have to say. Although, other well, governments... It's
0: not damning. I just think it's just the nature of government. Government is risk averse, you know, and...
1: But- but we know that other governments i mean perhaps because they have the scale have programs that have enabled the entry of of smaller companies if not tiny startups but sbir i think is one in the us that has a pot of money available you know specifically for the purpose of local industry development so i don't know other countries seem to have been more successful than than the australians but we won't uh, flog government too hard
0: well it's interesting because you are right and it's a cultural thing if you look at the oracle story as a good example, this is one of the world's biggest software companies. It wouldn't exist if the government there, uh, which was the CIA, had not been prepared to give this little startup that had a product that um, actually didn't even work a go. And when they interviewed the CIA, they said at the time, actually, we didn't expect it would really work, but we thought we'd give it a go. Uh, what have we got to lose? And I think it does show that if you take a different approach, you have a different cultural approach, then um, you can get huge outcomes, and Oracle is a good example. They would not exist if it wasn't for the CIA taking a punt on them when they were a small startup.
1: Yeah, I would you know, they always get bagged immediately for trying to pick winners and that kind of thing, but you would have to say that particularly at this time in this industry, there is strategic interest in building capability in very specific areas, and that might take some money being chucked at, uh, at some players that you think might get up.
0: Well, definitely. I mean, you know, this is a golden opportunity. I mean, we are at a point where the world is moving digitally, totally digitally, and, you know, software as a service is the platform to make that happen, overlay that artificial intelligence, and pretty much every industry is going to be redefined in some way, which is going to create a whole new set of players. And we're starting to see some of the the early obvious ones, like, you know, the Airbnbs and the Ubers and stuff, but that's just the tip of this massive iceberg and if Australia gets its act together, I mean, we can be hugely successful because in this new world, the SaaS world, you build global products and you take them to market globally. And it's much easier to take globally, you know, through a uh, digital marketing program. So um, it, it's a wonderful opportunity for the country if we can get our act together and nurture this uh, new generation. Yeah,
1: It is an incredibly exciting time to be alive, As to paraphrase Malcolm Turnbull. Okay, so on R&D, I wanted to ask you. Look, you are a kind of an exemplar in this country for the uh, the level of um, investment the company makes in, in R&D. I'm going to ask you about the R&D tax incentive. I think you've got a, a sort of a countervailing point of view on on the way that uh, governments attempted to restructure that. Just to summarise, so making some changes that. Uh, probably tightened the scheme and they were to be redirecting some of that money towards a greater level of grants rather than uh, tax incentives. What, what's your thinking on that?
0: Look, I think the R&D incentives are really very, very important. But like a lot of policies, you know, they implement in such a broad way that they don't work effectively. And i, I use an example. I have this bunya pine on my property. And it's massive. It's like a hundred years old. It doesn't matter what I do to it. I mean, it's not going to die. You know, I mean, it's just going to continue to grow. Then around this big bunya pine, there are these little small seedling of the bunyas. You know, little baby ones. And I mean, if I step on them, they'll die. If I don't water them, they'll die. And I think that's the analogy. I mean, we have these big companies in Australia. You know, they're big. They're strong. They're not going to die. And if they die, they're going to die because of their own incompetency. I mean, to allocate R and D funds to these organisations. And I put Tech One in there as well. Is just crazy. If those R and D funds make a difference to our decision making, then that's a terrible indictment on us. And they're not going to make us survive. The money that they are allocating to companies like us and the banks and you know CSL, you know for R and D is a waste of money. It really is. I mean, you're not going to get anywhere near the return than if you target all that money and you put it down to the startups because those startups. They will become, some of them, huge, big bunya pines one day, and that's what you want. And so what you've got to do is redirect those funds and put it to where it has the biggest result, which is in the startup. And then once you do it, you get rid of a lot of these policies they have, which are bureaucratic and difficult and hard. I mean, you know, software should be automatically part of the R&D claim. We need to get rid of all the paperwork and the bureaucracy because startups cannot cope with the paperwork that has to be there and the clawback provisions as well i mean you know that's just horrendous but you get all that because they come out with a policy which is looking at the whole spectrum but you know you don't want to look at the whole spectrum you know the big companies they really are just being greedy that's the bottom line as far as i'm concerned the money needs to be redirected to where it has the biggest impact which is the startups and i i exist in both worlds i exist in you know the the asx corporate world and I also operate in the startup world. And I see the huge difference these funds have. It, it, it is the difference between life and death for startups. And, you know, we just need to give them as much love and nurture as we can. That's the future. That's where we're going to get the biggest results in this country. It's not from tech one going from being $3 billion to $6 billion. It's from a startup going from nothing to $3 billion and doing that in 10 years. And that's possible in this new world.
1: Well, I guess uh, we'll be looking forward to hearing if there's any news on this in the uh, federal budget coming up. I mean, beyond obviously the NBN uh, announcement, there hasn't been a lot of uh, leakage out of government on uh, what what they've got planned for um, for industry development in the in the tech sector in that budget. But we'll soon find out. Just a couple of final questions. I um, I had a pre-call with one of your people. I was asking a, a little bit about your personal life and. Uh, I was told that your hobby is Brisbane startups, which seems – I mean, we've learned earlier that you play golf, but Brisbane startups are your – your, hobby. Uh, how are things going up there? It's kind of a – the startup ecosystem has really, really come on. What's Brisbane like these days?
0: Very good. Like, I actually invest in quite a few startups, not just in Brisbane. I invest through Australia and actually overseas as well, so I get a quite an interesting view of the whole startup economy and ecosystem and how it works, and Look, it is like a whole alternative universe. I mean, I don't think people really understand, you know, what's happening. There's this wonderful startup ecosystem that is growing and thriving here in Australia, and it's being nurtured, you know, by the VCs. And the outcome of that is going to be just, I think, spectacularly great over the next ten years. But we need to continue to have the right policies to develop these companies or these startups. And um, I look at some of the countries that are more advanced, like in Israel where I spend a bit of time and there's so much ahead of us you know what I mean the way that they operate they work they think the linkages between the universities and the startups and I think you know we we still have a long way to go and that's why I'm so passionate about redirecting resources and money and focus into startups but we have got a very vibrant startup community here in uh, in Brisbane just like in Sydney and Melbourne and uh, you know I think we are a long way down that track but we we need to do more we need to go further and we need to Listen to startups. We, we, we don't listen to them enough, you know, and I think that's the problem. You know, government, if government wants to play a part, that's if they want to play a part, then actually, you know, put together a work a task force and really spend time listening to the startup community and the VCs and, and addressing their issues.
1: I'm interested in the uh, where you think the gaps are in that kind of ecosystem you've just described, particularly in relation to, I mean, we can't all be Israel, obviously, but I, I don't think there's a multinational company that doesn't have a substantial research outfit in Israel mm. uh, as opposed to here where we've got sales and marketing offices effectively and distribution offices. So where, where do you see the gaps in that ecosystem?
0: Look, oh, I think it, it, part of it is the fact that in Israel they really Rejoice in their startups and they are proud of them and they highlight the success of their startups. Um, I remember getting into a cab and the cab driver talking to me about his son who had a startup and they had just raised their Series A round. This is a cab driver in Israel able to talk about a Series A round, right? And I said, that's really strange. And he said, oh, no, we, we, we all understand how it all works, you know. And, uh, you know, even the uh, the wives and, and the mothers and stuff, I mean, you know, they're so passionate and so proud of their companies and they highlight them. We don't do that in Australia. We do not highlight the success. And when we do have a success like Afterpay, I use them as an example, people want to cut them down all the time. Now, I mean, you know, like it's not good. And I think it's that cultural difference. It's about It is about really having... This in-depth pride and passion, and promoting your startups, and therefore, if you do that, then the risk-averse culture starts to disappear because then government does want to engage with them because they're proud of them, and they uh, they want to know why aren't we dealing with an Israeli company? And then you know, also to the way the ecosystem works over there is that they support their companies, so they open up the doors for those companies into big opportunities, whether it's in multinationals or in the US or whatever, they open the doors for them through the networks that they have. So, they are actively promoting their startups and they, you know, they invest in it and they know that if they promote them and they're active in it, then they'll get a huge return. And I think the numbers today show that Israel is number three in the world as far as um, companies listing on the Nasdaq. I think American company is number one. I think China is number two. And Israel is number three. So that's how successful they have been in creating that ecosystem and that culture.
1: That's an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary number, isn't it? Okay, um, Adrian Demarco from Technology One. I want to uh, finish up on this question. You've got a, a foundation, Tech One Foundation, or Technology One Foundation?
0: The Technology One Foundation. Yes.
1: Technology One Foundation. But can you, we'll we'll finish here, but it's obviously a passion of yours. What's the, like your particular focus? What are you trying to achieve through that?
0: Look, we established the foundation because we had been so successful and we wanted to give back to the community, you know, and it helped to, I think, center the business as well. We wanted to really center the, the business and the foundation we thought would help to do that. So we established the foundation and We set a big goal for the foundation too, so when we established it, the goal was that we wanted to get half a million kids, that's 500,000 kids, and their families out of poverty over a 10-year period. So um, we then had to go away and think about how we could do that, and we rallied the whole company around that mission of getting 500,000 kids and their families out of poverty. So it's been really a great thing for the company, for its values, its culture. And also too, as far as really making a, an impact back into society, and it's really focused on kids because we believe that's where the future lies. That's where you can get the biggest change, and we particularly like to focus on supporting great Australians that are working on the global stage in achieving that goal. So we do a lot of work with the School of Saint Jude, for example, in Tanzania. We do a lot of work with an organisation called Opportunities Australia, which is very big in um, third world countries particularly India um, through microfinancing so we help to support them and then we support the Fred Hollows Foundation and all the great work that they do globally so uh, it's been something we've been very passionate about as a company.
1: Uh, Adrian and Mark I've really enjoyed our discussion today thanks very much for uh, for getting on the call and um, all the best.
0: Thank you James you have a lovely day nice to talk to you. All right good on you thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Commercial Disco. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy. And reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is The Commercial Disco wishing you a great week ahead.